Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. We are in the Paradox Playlist series, and Danielle, we have had so many amazing women leaders on, and I am so, so excited to welcome back another amazing woman leader from Disney musicals in New York, uh, Lisa, Dr. Lisa Mitchell. I don't want to forget that, Lisa. <laughs> you and my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, you earned it. So I'm going to, I'm going to play it out and hear it on the podcast. So welcome Lisa. It's so good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. And Danielle, it's good to see you. We haven't chatted in a bit, Danielle, other than tech. So it's nice to see your face back on zoom. I am so excited to learn from you again. And then Lisa, I'm just overwhelmed with joy to have you on as well. And, you know, with this season already coming out, we have learned so much from our leaders. So I'm excited for my mind to be expanded this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. So for folks who have been listening to the podcast, uh, Lisa, Dr. Mitchell should be a familiar voice to you. I almost said face, but familiar voice to you. Um, she is the Director of Education and Audience Engagement at Disney Theatrical Group. She engages with students, teachers, and audiences through Broadway performances and student-driven productions. Um, she's also ha held field positions, committee service at the Broadway League, the Roger Reed's Award Advisory Board, the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable Board, and the Board of Directors for the American Alliance for Theater and Education. She also um, recently, feels like forever ago now, Lisa, but she did recently earn her doctorate and education at Hopkins. And that is why we are we are celebrating and using um, doctor after her name. So Lisa, again, welcome. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, Lisa, you know, this season is specifically focused on leadership. And you know, this is a podcast about belonging and cultivating community and connection. And so Danielle and I started talking about, we, we really, since Danielle, actually, since Danielle took my class, and I think you were actually the teaching assistant, which is crazy. Um, wild. I know, right? Um, Danielle and I have told the story that, you know, we were both intrigued by this idea of paradoxical leadership and this over a longer period of time led to this, this 10 part series on paradox. And so the first question we really want to ask you, Lisa, that we've been asking all our guests is what's your definition of leadership? Great. Um, my definition of leadership, you know, it's so funny after going through the leadership courses at Hopkins, we were hit with so many um, well-studied academic definitions of it. And I think elements of them really resonated with me. But at the end of the day, um, the more sort of lived tacit experience of leadership that I have mm -hmm. is being able to identify the unique gifts, skills, and strengths of an individual and a group Mm. and helping to facilitate those people to reach their full potential. Mm. And the way that folks do that, I think, varies dependent on leadership style, strength, capacity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it is um, allowing folks to, um, to do their best and to be their best and to bring innovative ideas to the tables, oftentimes by getting out of their way. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I know we're going to dig in today. I just, I'm thinking about Broadway and Disney and New York City during the pandemic and your definition of leadership and thinking that must have been quite a Herculean task for you and your team to sort of think about how to 
how to support and get out of people's way, right, to do the work that needed to be done. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing hearing about that sort of adventure. Uh, I know you're still in the midst of it in some ways, but hopefully, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that the worst is is behind us all, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, me too. And it's exciting to see shows back on stages Yay. and people getting back to audiences and everybody's kind of getting back to doing what we all know and love so well. So I agree with you. I hope that we're, we're, we're deep into the, the great Renaissance that I think is coming. Awesome. Awesome. I love that word Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about your definition of leadership, Lisa, I, I agree with you, Carrie is I'm really curious to see how you navigated this during the pandemic and particularly related to innovation, which brings us to our question about paradox. And I have to just echo again how cool this is. The fact that, Lisa, you were the teaching assistant with Carrie when she was teaching the class. I was a student. And this is when I was first introduced to paradoxical leadership. And since then, it has morphed into this large spiritual awakening, I would say, and leadership awakening for both Carrie and myself over the past two years. But as you're talking about paradox, and maybe in in the role of innovation, maybe not, what, what do you see as the role of a paradox or a paradoxical mindset in your definition of leadership? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, I don't know that I've ever thought about it in those terms before, but when I apply that lens, I see paradox all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of going back to my previous definition of what I think leadership is, it's, it's sort of identifying the unique skills and capacities and gifts and lived experience of folks and helping to facilitate those to achieve a common goal, right? And um, at the same time, you can't really do that unless there is that common goal that's established and that there are, it, you, you have the capacity to say when something's getting too wide and we need to get more specific in our focus, right? And so that's where I think paradox comes in for me is how I would articulate my leadership style mm. versus the sort of um, guardrails that um, I have to put on myself put on my department, put on our team um, to achieve the the things that we set out to achieve. Mm. And I think another paradox within the paradox is being able to like revise thought and to say, nope, that you were right. We should go in that direction, right? I am being too limited in scope if this is really what's going on here. Mm. Um, So I think it's that constant pull. Like if you think of things as a polarity, Mm -hmm. that constant pull of the North and the South Mm -hmm. of, um, of a given topic or project that the paradox seems to come up in. Yeah. I like, I like the metaphor of the guardrails that you brought up. That's a really interesting one. Cause when, when Danielle and I started on the journey with the podcast, we were, you know, of course, and you'll appreciate this, Lisa, you know, we were thinking about, you know, paradox as a construct and immediately we're like, we need to define this thing. Right. And so <laughs> in that intro, um, uh, podcast episode, we defined it as these seemingly conflicting ideas, right? And we presented that to Aiko Bathia, who was on a few weeks ago, and in her elegant, super intellectual way, really smart, she said that she wanted to challenge that premise, that she's not, she doesn't like the idea of seemingly conflicting, because it immediately sets you up in a defensive position. And so she likes the word multiple net phrase, multiple narratives. And so I feel like in some ways, guardrails is sort of the same sort of act in my brain is that like, 
you can hold this one view and then you also have this other view that might act as a scoping, right? Like a fencing or almost scaffolding, right? In some way. So um, it's interesting that you use the term guardrails. So I really like that. Yeah. I, and I love that too, that sort of like flipping it on its head mm -hmm. of, um, of what it does to us when we hear the phrase. It also makes me think like there's a lot of, of paradox within my field. So like a classic mm -hmm. example would be when you think about the arts in schools, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's sort of like one camp of folks who are like, you teach the arts for the arts. You teach them so that you learn the craft of the arts and all the benefits that come with that. Mm -hmm. There's another group of folks who really push for arts integration, which is using the arts to teach another topic. So mm -hmm. the capacity of using um, you know, visual arts to teach math or social studies or whatever, right? And that is a classic paradox, especially when you get into the advocacy space in my field is like, what are we really championing for here? What are we really pushing? Is it arts for arts sake? Is it arts integration? Mm. And, and why not both? Like why, why can't it be both and as opposed to either or? Yeah. And when we allow ourselves to apply that like polarity level of thinking, yep. right? You find the benefits of the strengths of each thing yep. and apply those while looking out for the challenges and the pitfalls of each polarity and yeah. avoid those, mm -hmm. then you can kind of um, sort of change the framework entirely. I love that. And it reminded me of exactly what you said. I want to circle back to, I think it sort of relates to what you're talking about, but you in the initial response to the question was this revised thought. And when I see you talking about arts and arts integration and bringing that both and it requires this revised thought. And back to when we're thinking about even just operationalizing a paradox, there requires some discomfort, some tension maybe to then go back and revise that thought. So what do you, can you elaborate more on what you mean by revised thought and how you even come to doing that? Like, why is that integral in, in maintaining a paradox mindset? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what I mean by sort of revision of thought is, is just like a slightly fancier way of saying it's okay to change your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And you change your mind, not because of impulse or because of necessarily even persuasion, but the things that underpin persuasion, mm -hmm. right? What is the, what is the current evidence saying, right? What is, you know, if you're, if you're going down this path for this end goal, is it, is there value in challenging your own assumptions? And if the answer is no, then you continue down that path until you reach that goal. But if some of your assumptions are faulty, right, mm -hmm. then you need to revise your thought and take a different tactic. So if you're like, you know, recruiting for an open position um, in a school and you're not getting the type of candidates that you want to see represented in your school, but you continue, you know, proceeding as you have in the past, you're not going to get a different outcome. Mm -hmm. But if you allow yourself to revise your thoughts and challenge your own assumptions, is it because these candidates don't exist or because we're not looking for them in the right places? Mm -hmm. Is there some kind of barrier in our own institution that prevents these candidates from raising their hands, et cetera? Then you can challenge your assumptions, revise your thought and take a different approach. Mm -hmm. I love that. I was going to ask a question, but then you said something and made me want to ask a different question. So I'm going <laughs> to ask that different question. And it's particularly because some of our audience members let us know that they really enjoy like getting into the specifics. Like it's all great to talk up here. I'm, I'm sort of waving my hand up in the air, but they really like what like the brass tacks. And since we're doing a series on leadership, like what does this look like in practice? And so I'm really curious, Lisa, in your own work, 
that, that notion of challenge, you said challenging your assumptions, questioning your assumptions, like for you, how does that happen? How often does that happen? Why does it happen? Like, what's the sort of, I don't know, guidepost or something that says, Ooh, I should be checking that assumption. Can you just give us an example of something? Yeah. Um, that's a really great question. And, um, I'm trying to think of an example that I can share. That's like work that's already out there. Instead yeah, of work and it doesn't have current. to be, it doesn't have to be super specific, even just like generic. Yeah. I, I can definitely be speak, careful. Yeah. Yeah. I can, de- I can definitely speak generally about yeah. it. I think where it comes from the most is, um, planning meetings with my team mm. and what it might look like is saying like, okay, you know, we've got this project going on. I'd like us to do these things by this date in order for us to release this thing that we're working on. And in the first planning sessions, we kind of get the ideas, we're kind of getting the ingredients ready for the recipe that will be this you know, new program, let's say. Um, and things are going well, but as more information comes in and the sort of complexity of the system show themselves, maybe a team member mm-hmm. says, hey, like I realize that we're spending a lot of our time trying to solve for why teachers aren't using this part of the tool in our pilot. Should should we be spending time revising that tool or understanding if teachers even need this, Mm -hmm. right? And as more meetings happen, more and more people might speak up and start questioning if this is where we should be investing our time and energy based on the assumptions that we have going on. So for me, it happens in... um, in the rapport I, I hope I have with my department in mm. their comfort in having a like dissenting opinion. I mean, it's a strong word, but like a be, feeling, feeling that it is in the best service of the work to throw a flag or ask a hard question or acknowledge mm. something that we keep coming back to. Mm. Right. And in those moments um, they, in, in raising those concerns or bringing up those new ideas, that's oftentimes where we do our best work and where we oftentimes do revise mm. our thoughts. It. it sort of reminds me of the research question process a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. As you dig more and more into the work, you revise your thought and you have a different direction you might go. And I think that happens in our practical work as well. Yeah. It's funny that you said um, dissenting because having spoken to you, I mean, I've spoken to you quite often, but even just the few episodes that you've been on this podcast, we've talked about sort of the pre-work and the hard work you do to create, you know, this container. And so I think the word dissenting probably isn't the right word for the work you do, right? To me, it's like, I don't know. I was thinking about, it's just you and your team being curious, right? Like yes. it's more curiosity than yeah. dissenting. So I don't yeah. know. I'm just wondering. I, it is, but sometimes it's, it's, um, sometimes it's someone feeling, um, you know, empowered enough or bold enough to say like, hang on, we've been spending a lot of time talking about this. And I actually don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Mm, Let's go back to our mission. And so there is an element of um, healthy challenge to it that I think pushes the work forward. Cool. I'm curious. I love that that example that you used. And I would imagine too, that um, as you're talking, there's a lot of strategies that this works, particularly during times of challenge. And (laughs) I Gee, where are you thinking, going, Danielle? <laughs> I'm I'm just really curious about this because as soon as you became you came on, Lisa, um, you know, and I'm coming at this too. I I live in New York, New York City, and um, thinking about the greatest challenge for theater and Broadway, 
I walked by Times Square and I saw all of the boarded up windows to every Broadway show. I had friends working in theater in the city and I'm only seeing just the symbol of this shutting down. I want to know the challenges that you were navigating behind the symbols of the closed windows. How do you then navigate the challenge and the challenge of, I didn't even say it yet, the pandemic and applying all of these tools and strategies to just navigate something that was just out of our even experience before 2021, 2020? Yeah, I mean, that is like, it is such a good question. And um, I'll share a little bit like kind of organizationally behind peek behind the scenes. So my role in the education department is, is um, sort of a service department to our Broadway shows, right. And to our other content that we create. And so thankfully there are folks in production um, and management and creative development who were um, working just endlessly um, to solve those challenges as it relates to the visible elements that you're talking about, Danielle, and about getting you know our shows back up and they're back. They are back on on Broadway, and it's terrific to see. But sort of meanwhile, in the education department, we had the unique challenge of our shows, which we are in service to, being closed, but also schools being mm. remote mm-hmm. uh, across the country. And so we had this intersection of sort of double impact that was particularly challenging, um, especially considering that in a moment when, when stages were dark and schools were remote, the students who had access to arts education through school didn't have it. The students who had access to arts education through theater companies didn't have it. And the students who had access to the arts through the intersection of those two things didn't have it. And teachers who are the conduit to those student experiences were in crisis mode, learning uh, on the drop of a dime how to teach remotely, how to solve really complex, big social problems in a pandemic that none of us had experienced in our lifetimes before. So the access point that we had to students was already completely overworked and um, and at a bit of a a need themselves. So that was really hard. Um, That coupled with obviously the financial impact and the implications on staffing, et cetera, meant that we had to innovate ways of preserving arts education for young people Mm. in this time of national and global crisis in a way that didn't add to the burden of teachers ideally alleviated some burden from teachers and brought a bit of joy and escape that theater and storytelling can bring. Mm. Um, All from our living rooms (laughs) with our intermittent internet access. Mm. So I'm just so grateful to work with the types of folks I work with because faced with a challenge like that, it would be understandable for everyone to say like, let's just pause. Let's just give people a chance to get back on their feet. And then we would have lost 18 months of arts education. Instead, um, the team did what they do best, which is imagining the world as if it could be otherwise. And they took a look at what resources we have and figured out how we could get them to students in a way just to keep the light on. 
so that when they could safely return to the theater, there was continuity, there was um, an acknowledgement that the folks in the theater remembered them and care about them and had been waiting for them to return. So we did that um, in a couple of different ways. Um, one way was we had previously developed an online theater curriculum available for elementary and middle school students that was intended to be a sort of supplement to our productions of The Lion King that kids can produce. In order to have access to this curriculum, you had to purchase the license pre-pandemic to the shows and be in production of your own version of The Lion King, and then you'd have access to this curriculum. But we said, hang on a second, we're sitting on a virtual theater curriculum. What if we remove the paywall? What if we removed the paywall and made it free to anybody with internet access to come and experience theater education um, through the Lion King experience? So that was the first thing we did. The next thing that we did was we looked at the curriculum and went, ah, this curriculum, here's the thing about assumptions, this curriculum assumes that an educator is in a room with students who are learning together. We no longer can make that assumption. What has to change? And boy, did it get weird. <laughs> we were telling people to get out their beanie babies and stage the circle of life. <laughs> we were telling people to borrow a sibling if they had one or another person in their home and do scene work. Mm -hmm. um, but we did it. And we made these at-home learning modifications uh, also available for free. And in doing that and challenging our assumptions and thinking differently and removing the barrier to access, we achieved our goals, which was lightening the load for educators getting this content to students at a time when they needed and bringing a bit of joy into the world. We saw the um, web traffic on lionkingexperience.com skyrocket mm. higher than it had ever been previously under its um, traditional circumstances. We have since made the decision to preserve free access to it. Mm. So the at-home learning modifications are gone because thank goodness, because that was a stopgap. But the, <laughs> the traditional curriculum is still free. Mm. Um, and that I think was one example of when you allow yourself to imagine the world as if it could be otherwise, get the right people in the room to do it and just work real hard to make it happen. You can actually achieve what feel like impossible goals sometimes. Yeah. I, I have to say, Lisa, I always know when you agree to come on the podcast, which I'm always so grateful for. And I know Danielle is too, that you're going to have these great, wonderful theater slash business examples of these things. And I'm just to recap in case people are not paying attention. So you came on and we were talking about, you know, Broadway making its return and you're, you were so, you're so optimistic and hopeful for the future. And to me, that's, um, this idea of, um, you know, just, I have down here, one of the paradoxes, sort of like the, the reality and the dreaming, right. Sort of like keep it, keeping hope. Um, and the morning and awakening, right? We had a big morning in the pandemic and this awakening and opportunity. We talked a little bit about revision and another paradox that we love to talk about is the expert learner paradox, right? And that is alive and well in your work. The other thing we talked about was this really important um, aspect of your work around dissent and curiosity. And so this notion of being fierce and also soft, right? Like being able to, so I just, I love that, you know, we don't always think about different contexts as, as having these paradoxes to be alive and well, and they really seem to be in your work. I wanted to circle back to the one, cause I was, as you were telling your story, I was really thinking about the reality and the dreaming. Cause I know we had had conversations when 
you know, in the midst of the pandemic, Broadway and theater just really didn't know what was going to happen. Right. And we were hearing and I was seeing on Facebook these awesome, um, you know, actors doing different things online to sort of keep, you know, honing their talents. And so you, you told us some success stories, which I just love to hear. Um, and I'm wondering, in addition to I feel like you already had a really strong team culture, it sounds like when you think about that multiple narrative of the reality of the situation that, you know, people, you know, the teachers load, the, the actors load, et cetera, and the dreaming, which you love to apply to theater, where else are you going to dream, but at Broadway, right? So like, how did you and your team, this is a lot, very long question. I apologize. But like, how did you and your team sort of get from the realities, I mean, let's face it, these were pretty stark realities at time, but like stark reality. Like, how did you move from being in that stark reality to like, I don't know, like almost letting the light back in to dream about these possibilities? Like, what did that, does that make sense? Like, what does that look like for, for your team? Yeah, it, it looked, um, it, I remember being in those conversations and those meetings when we were mm-hmm. trying to talk about things like re- revising the Lion King experience to make it available to kids and teachers in this time of need. And I remember being in those meetings and everybody just saying like, oh, it feels so good to just do what we do mm. again, even though it's in a different format and for a different goal, but it just, you know, after those early weeks of like, what is happening? And it was all terrifying. and. Yeah nobody knew what was going on to just be creating again. Mm. It just felt like, um, it felt like a privilege. Mm. And I don't know that we had ever taken it, taken it for granted. I, I don't want to speak for anybody else who's involved in those projects, but for me, I had taken it as routine. Like that's like, how lucky am I that I get to show up and like my paid work is to make make believe happen yeah. in various mm-hmm. formats and for various reasons like that is so cool <laughs> and then we went into this um you know mode where everything just became um uncertain and unclear and when we had those moments where we were creating again it just felt like it just felt like a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. um so i think in some ways it was self fulfilling mm. Because when it's taken away from you and when you have that opportunity and your brain tells you how important this is um, to your well-being and to your livelihood and the collective tends to feed on that as well, Mm -hmm. you seek to create more of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the very cool thing is when you put it out there, like when when we got the Lion King experience out there and to see the web traffic go up and then to get feedback from the field. We had one teacher, um, I had mentioned earlier that like, you know, as long as you had an internet connection, you could do this thing. Many people don't have access to reliable internet. Right. And so one teacher who lived in a rural part of California emailed us and said, Hey, I saw you guys made the Lion King experience available for free. I would like to facilitate this and offer it on cable access television. So my students can learn during the pandemic. And so she had the genius idea of reaching out to like the general guest mail at Disney forwarded to us. We gave her permission um, to do it. 
And she did. She facilitated every single lesson on cable access TV. And at 11 o'clock on Wednesdays, kids in her community sat crisscross applesauce in front of the television and got their theater class. That's amazing. And just That's having awesome. that, like see, watching, I had to like watch and approve her videos. Yeah. And I was just like sobbing by the end of them. I'm like, <laughs> this is so good. Right. But like having that feedback come in of it feels good to do it. It's making a difference. It's working. It sort of just kept us all going. And I think like at a certain point after 18 months of a pandemic, everybody hits the wall Yeah, and like certainly have been there. But I think sometimes we like make the choice to Kool-Aid man through the wall. <laughs> and it's because it's because the work is it just matters so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I love being in the meetings when that's what the work is. Yeah. I have two questions. And for the both of you, we can decide what you, I would like you to answer first, or maybe we don't want to answer one. But um, the, the first one, and maybe we table this one for, for later in the episode, is I just love this idea and this action of you in a creative space. There's something just so inspirational by creators and specifically in the in theater and and Disney like that you're creating this product this experience that we can never imagine so I'm curious how we could take for other people in other industries how we could use that those skills those behaviors from the creative space from you as a creator in our own industries that's one question the second one that keeps coming back to is the original article that we had read with paradoxical leadership, the Smith article, the original one was um, how to navigate the paradox of promoting the social cause and ensuring financial stability. And for you, I'm, I'm sure that was something that you had to reckon with throughout the pandemic. And I, I'm just like, I'm almost flying out of my seat right now thinking about how you're continuing, your team's continuing to make this difference and impact. And I'm curious as to how you were able, to, you navigated this paradox of ensuring you were making an impact, ensuring you were making a difference, reaching children through cable television, through you know free access to programming, and at the end of the day, keeping your team on board that they were able to have this livelihood through financial well-being throughout the pandemic. So you can choose one of those two questions first. And we'll see where yeah. we go from there. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to take the second one because it's fresh in my mind. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I think beyond the pandemic, this notion that you're talking about is um, sort of, it's been like the, the through line of my career. This notion that at the end of the day, I work for a large pub publicly held commercial enterprise. And a lot of the work that I do feels philanthropic in nature, mm -hmm. right? Um, and early in my career, I talk about a paradox. I felt that pull pretty hard. And I would also, I would, I would oftentimes be off target on my goals. I would over-index in one area and, and not the other. Um, and it took some just like lived experience, learning how these two things can be symbi symbiotic when they are mission driven. And when the, the purpose is crystal clear. Um, I'm starting to challenge myself to think about what are the non-financial goals of something and how do you assess their value so that you can communicate properly to all stakeholders. Um, I'm also very fortunate that it, because my work does sort of 
straddle these like two arenas that I've got a very close working relationship with the division of the Walt Disney Company that does a lot of the um, um, social responsibility work. And so they're the, the folks who, um, who do a lot of charitable contributions, who do a lot of environmental causes, et cetera. Um, so I can align very clearly with what, what are the larger goals of the company and how, how does my programming feed into those goals? So to answer your question, at the outset of any new initiative, whether that is a um, spur of the moment revision of an online theater curriculum to meet the needs of a pandemic, or something that is much more planned for and deliberate in nature, like the curriculum of a new Broadway show, right? Whatever it is that we're doing, we always start with what's our mission? And my department, although we work for a big commercial enterprise, every year we go back to what we think our mission is. And we look at, we start at the very top, we stop, start at the top of the Walt Disney Company and go down to the business unit that we work within and then our department. And we make sure that our mission is always feeding into the next sort of like higher entity in the chart. And in doing so, when we begin a new initiative, we start out by saying, okay, well, what are the goals of this initiative? And before, after we've outlined the goals, before we start any work on it, we look at it against our mission. Do they align? Is this fulfilling either financial goals we have, social goals we have, goals of representation we have, goals of access we have? And if it's not, why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. Do we need to revise the mission? Do we need to revise the project? Do we need to not do the project? And if it is, is it doing one of those goals, all of those goals or some combination? And across the portfolio, we just wanna look at the entire year of work and ensure that if we have articulated something in a mission that is represented by real work that we're doing that has real goals attached to it. So then when it's time to talk to, whether it's my boss <laughs> or the leadership of our company or reports that the public sees, We've got a very clear narrative about why we're doing this work and how things can, can be two things at once, right? There are things that have real business case for the company that also carry social good, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's not every project. Some of them are one, some of them are the other, some of them are something in between. Um, but we can be more than one thing at one time if, if we're um, mission-driven and goal-aligned. So you mentioned... Um this idea of one of the goals is around oftentimes, and you, and you gave a great example, promoting access, right? So you really, you pivoted for that um, teacher in California who didn't have internet access. So that's clearly a, a perfect example. I'm also listening to you and, and my, just knowing your work, you work with a diversity of stakeholders, truly, like not just sort of in roles, but in place, right? In geographic location. And so I'm wondering when you think about the paradoxes that we've talked about and that you've described, what do you think the role of, of, for lack of a better word, embracing paradox or wrestling with paradox, whatever the right word is there, what role do you think that plays in promoting equity, inclusion, access, you know, those important um, elements that we are striving for? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, I think paradox is just a, a sort of default state. It's a sort of given in anything worth doing, there's always going to be another side of the coin, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think 
whether it's embracing it or wrestling with it, I think just acknowledging it mm-hmm. is sometimes really powerful and can also sometimes take the teeth out of it a little bit, right? Yeah. Going back to that, why is it either or? Why can't it be both and, right? What what can we learn from the other side of the coin? Mm. And even if that's learning about ourselves and like where that line is that we won't cross, that is valuable information to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the diversity of, of stakeholders, it made me think, I don't know if this really goes to your question or, or if it's a tangent, but it's 4.30 on the Monday after Halloween and I'm going to tell you about it. Hey, that's okay. um, <laughs> Sounds good. So it, <laughs> It makes me like the diversity of stakeholders is really an interesting thing in that we work with folks all across the United States. We work with folks in the UK. We've got some other um, international markets that we're going to be doing some partnerships with. And across the board, those collaborations have been successful because we are this big, we represent this big multinational enterprise, but we partner with local experts. So we are not going in to, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota as the Walt Disney Company. We are Disney Theatrical Group partnering with the Hennepin Theater Trust for the local experts Mm. and working together to do something on the local level. So I think we're successful in that paradox of like big multinational corporation doing work at the most local level possible, which is the local elementary school, because we acknowledge that paradox and find an authentic way in to the relationship, which is through local experts who we partner with and trust to, um, to collaborate with us in carrying out our shared mission. So what do you think, I mean, I don't know how to ask this other than just ask it, like, what's the secret sauce for you though, Lisa? Cause I have to say like, you know, I've, I've been at large organizations trying to work with small organizations. I've been at small organizations, skeptical of large organizations. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, how do you get beyond the sort of, you know, the, ter- the term we're hearing nowadays is power over versus power with, right? Like, mm-hmm. h- how do you, I mean, look, Disney is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's huge. Like, so like, what's the secret? So, like, how do you convince a local elementary school that this is a collaborative, co-constructing kind of work? Yeah, I think that's, it's something that I've been reflecting on for like 15 years. And mm-hmm. I think we've stumbled on a successful model of that. I don't know that it's necessarily the only successful model of that. But to me, it takes two things. The first is that local level relationship that I mm-hmm. was just sharing. So we are working through a nonprofit arts organization um, in the local community who is in turn working with their own local level artists. And we're sort of giving them the keys. We're not gonna push in and tell you what to know and not know about your community and the needs of your students and schools. You all know that. We know how to do jazz hands, you know, with 10 year olds about this specific content, but you all are the local experts. So I think that, that trust in, in asking uh, local partners to collaborate with us is huge and goes miles. But the, the other element that I think is so unique and successful is um, we are making these beloved stories available, but we're asking students and teachers to tell them. Oh, we're not I saying we're gonna come in and perform mm. for you. We're saying, here's a script, here's a score the story is yours to tell. 
And in doing that, we are giving um, what is our most sacred asset, which is our, our stories and our intellectual property to an elementary school and saying, this is yours as much as it is ours. Mm-hmm. Please take this and make this your own. We're going to help you do that by giving your teachers some training, but it's, it's your story to tell. And I think, I think that's the, the special sauce mm-hmm. to use your phrase. Yeah. There's something about that embodiment in the storytelling that once you've played that character in your third grade production of Aladdin or the jungle book, like you take that with you for the rest of your life. So that brings me back to my first question that I had about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) What, what, how, how do I do this in, in education? How do our Mm. listeners that are in the wellness organization, in the wellness industries or business, how do we take that power of story and awareness and shared co-constructing of, of narrative and teamwork that you get in the magic of theater. How do we do that in other industries? How do we just democratize that across the world? That's what I want to know. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it, I mean, this is like a cop-out answer, but I think part of it is really unique to theater. Yeah. Right. Especially musical theater, which is this multidisciplinary art that transcends any academic boundary. So like, if musical theater was like a, a core class during the you know nine to three school day, where would it fit? Would it be in music? Would it be in theater? If you're lucky enough to have access to those, would it be in English? It requires something that sort of transcends disciplinary boundary. And in doing so, it brings together collaborators in a really unique way. Um, so I think that's part of it. Mm. But I think... I think the other part of it is this notion of authenticity Mm -hmm. and is capitalizing like what is unique about your, I don't know, brand feels like a gross word, but like what is unique about your brand, your organization, your mission? What is it? What is the special thing that the organization, the brand, the mission contributes? And how do you, how do you give that to someone in a way that it also becomes theirs? And I wonder if that's kind of closer to what the model could be in other industries or other um, contexts. Yeah, that's what, I mean, I think you're right that it's unique to theater in the sense that the storytelling is the actual story, right? Like there's a dialogue or a play or there's verse, right? Like that piece is unique. But what I was taking away from it, I I was writing notes, is I wrote down and circled voice, and authenticity. And so if I think about the work that I do with students, how could I apply these great lessons to my own students? And what I was taking away, Lisa, is the goal at the end of the day for my students is to do a cogent research project. Just name it that. But why does it have to fit an academic sort of template of five chapters? Or why does it have to be um, a certain style or a certain form, right? Like what does, what does a student's voice, how does a student's voice really show through and in that research project? To me, that's a really interesting question and a way for academia to be thinking about what are the lessons from theater, right? Like how do you, to me, it's stepping away, right? Like in order for me to co-construct with a student, I really need to let their expertise and their talent shine through and not impose all of these 
things on them. Right. So I think in some ways it's super unique, but in other ways, I think there's a lot we could all learn from what you're doing in theater. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And that makes me think too, like something else that is unique about theater and any of the performing arts really is that it is tacit in nature. Like if you are going to gather this knowledge and how to do it, you, you get that by doing it. That's the only way to get it. Yeah. You can go to a bunch of shows, you can read a theater history textbook, but until you stage a scene or learn a combination, you don't have that lived skill set. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sort of apprenticeship model in the performing arts that I think is interesting and could be applied to many other disciplines in K-12 schooling as well. The thing that's tricky about it is that it takes so much time and time is the scarcest of all resources in making things happen in schools. Lisa, I have to say, I'm just blown away by everything that you have offered throughout this episode. And I know for Carrie and myself, there's so much that we've brought in about our concept of paradox and even operationalizing this. And I, and I use operationalize, but it's almost when I hear about theater and the magic of theater, it's almost humanizing paradox. You've talked about how paradox is inherent in a lot of different situations and all situations. And I always go back to how it truly is embodied in the human experience. And so before we close, Carrie and I want to know if there's anything that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't touched upon in our time together. I don't think so. I think one of the things like just reflecting on your bigger theme this season of paradox that this pandemic has like, I don't know if taught me is the right word so much as like forced me <laughs> is to get comfortable with discomfort in a lot of ways. It's sort of been like personal and management boot camp in so many ways when things that are outside of our control are happening all around us especially in the early days and the mid days of the pandemic. And we all learned whether we wanted to or not to get comfortable with discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that I think informs resiliency in a lot of ways. Um, and I wonder how we can apply that to paradoxes professionally, paradoxes in sticky problems in education um, going forward. Because I think whether or not we would want this gift from the pandemic again, we have it, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I wonder if we're coming out with a new set of, of skills to apply to some of these more pervasive challenges in, um, in public education. Mm. Mm, let's hope so. I really hope that we have a new set of skills to apply. I'm really hoping that our memories are not short on this very long pandemic. That's my my hope and my worry. <laughs> so. As Dr. Brene Brown always says, experience breeds perspective. So mm -hmm. let's hope that that yeah. continues to shift our perspective and how we apply moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree. So. Well, I have to say this has been a pleasure. And one thing I wrote down, Lisa Mitchell, is hashtag Kool-Aid man. I'm like <laughs> Kool-Aid man <laughs> breaking through the wall. So I just <laughs> I've been trying. I've been trying that one out for a couple of meetings. I recently said the Kool-Aid man thing in another meeting, but I didn't quite sell it. I was like, I feel like I'm Kool-Aid man throwing the wall, but I got stuck halfway through and now there's a bunch of bricks in my hair. And people were like, what? <laughs> well, it resonated with me. So I actually me wrote too. that down. So that was, that was very cool. So I just want to thank you again. I know that you have been so incredibly busy with 
work and life and your own family. And Danielle and I are just super grateful that you um, came on and gave us almost an hour of your time, which is just huge. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I loved our conversation. Absolutely. All right, everybody. This has been another episode of Tell Me This, the Paradox Playlist. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, everybody. So sincere Under the glaciers Your last year Sunday searching for Melodies Pulling around in Mountain streams Galaxies